It's May 2022, and the moor of the N3 highway has been swamped by what climate activists are calling the rain bomb. Uh, this is quite a serious situation here. I don't think this road is going to hold out for long. The water coming into here is absolutely treacherous. It's unbelievable. A few weeks earlier, the worst floods in recent memory decimated KZN, causing landslides and building collapses and washing whole areas into oblivion. More than 430 people died and parts of the province became completely inaccessible. Add this to the damage to lives, livelihoods and infrastructure caused by the July 2021 riots just 10 months before, and you could rightfully say the province feels like it's under siege. Uprisings on the streets, uprisings in the sky. KZN can't get a break. So finding time to record an interview among all this chaos with Zbu Zikore is not easy. Sikore is the founder of a grassroots movement that represents shack dwellers and indigent people called Abakhlali Basenjondolo. As a leading figure for some of the country's poorest people, it's his constituents who've been hardest hit by the rain bomb. This is the first thing that has ever happened in our family, that a massive number of people just die in one day, including babies, including our aunts, and it's just unbelievable. Zikore arrives for our interview at a local studio in an SUV with lights flashing and four impeccably dressed bodyguards. This is how even the most radical South Africans roll if they hope to stay alive. Unfortunately, the human right perspective does not approve of this scenario. But this is cause of Natal. There would be something seriously wrong with me speaking as I speak without any security measures because that's what we get killed for to tell the nation, to tell the world what South Africa has become. If the foreseeable future for the middle class and the wealthy is the enclaves protected by Zain Susiwala and Mohammed Ismail, who we met in episode one, then Zikore represents the reality of the many more people who live on the other side of those electrified fences. He also represents the sort of person activists once believed the ANC would protect and nurture. It is unfortunate that the freedom that we all received in 1994 became a fake freedom, a freedom that marginalized the majority of this country. It's the freedom that says when you are poor, you have no rights. Sikore was radicalized by what he saw around him after he arrived at the Kennedy Road shack settlement in Durban in 1997. 12,000 people, six taps, no functional toilets. One of the days I saw small kids playing around the pit rotten toilets and it was not drained for such a long time. And there were worms crawling around the toilets. Babies were playing there. And one of the babies' worms were surrounding her face. And I realized that actually the baby was eating worms. I was devastated. I could not hold it. Sometime later... Zikore says he saw an infant killed by rats. This is a friendly reminder that this podcast is set in the 21st century. It cannot be acceptable. It should not be normal that our children have to grow up under these conditions and and have to die this way. So I will say out of anger, hunger and frustration. After lies were made, then the residents were forced to find a collective voice. Abakhlali was formed in 2005 in one of the shack settlements here in Devon called Kennedy Road. We were formed to fight for, protect, promote 
and advance the interest and the dignity of the shack dwellers and the impoverished in South Africa. Today, the organization has more than 100,000 members in branches across the country. It's the biggest social movement to have emerged after apartheid. Having advocated for the rights of the poor, having demanded land for shack dwellers that is coveted by powerful politically connected cadres, and having insisted on the rule of law for everyone equally, Abatlali has found itself in constant conflict with the ANC. This has come at a grave cost. In the 17 years since its founding, 24 of its leaders have been assassinated, many in broad daylight, many in front of their children and communities, almost all of them in KZN and its largest municipality, Etiquini. Two of the latest killings happened just weeks before this interview. This clip is from Newsroom Africa. 40-year-old Noctula Mabaso died outside her home on Thursday evening. She had just come from a community meeting to feed her four children when gunmen crept up behind her and opened fire. She was found lying in a pool of blood here with six bullet wounds. Another leader, Ayanda Ngila, was gunned down at the settlement in March. Spoo, there's, a, there's an old saying, an old South African saying, trouble begins and ends in KZN. And you guys were at the center of that trouble, weren't you? Oh, yes, no, absolutely. We've never been welcome. And it was clear that we were actually struggling under the shadow of death. The level of violence we have seen is just incredible. So it was unimaginable that Sheikh could successfully organize outside the state control, organize outside the ruling party, expose the high-ranking politicians who are implicated in corruption. So whoever question their authority puts their life at risk. From the onset, the state was very hostile, and the province at the time was run by Zweli Mkhize. Dr. Zwilini Lawrence Mkhize, one of the most powerful KZN politicians of the democratic era. We wanted to get a better idea of the trouble that has shadowed Abakhlali over the past 17 years, and how someone like Mkhize, our first highwayman, fits into the picture. So we headed up the N3 north, towards the burned-out malls of Peter Maritzburg post-uprising and the Mkize homestead beyond. Daily Maverick presents The Highwayman, a limited podcast series written and directed by Richard Poplack and Diana Neal and produced with support from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. The content may not necessarily reflect the foundation's views or opinions. This is episode two, Bad Medicine. Okay, should we go? Will you lead us? Okay, sure. Just kilometers from KZN's second biggest city, with the husks of warehouses still standing along the road, we drive up into the hills to the gates of Mkize's homestead with a local acquaintance, Sipiwe. Like a celebrity homes tour of Hollywood, he's showing us where the local political stars keep their second, third, fourth and fifth properties. Streams cut through the red earth, which turns to milkshake in the rain. And who are the big political figures that come from this part of KZN? It would be Skukuzongwenya. It would be Velapinjo of the IFP. Zweli Mekize as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Zweli where you are heading. We are going straight, straight. The hills here are a proprietary shade of green. Sharp bursts of colour that reach up into an angry sky. It's a mix of botanical, topographical and meteorological overacting that helps explain why KZN is always so dramatic. We're looking at a palace here. Yeah, yeah there are areas where you, where you can see real palaces. Yeah. Mkize was born right here in 1956, in Willowfontein. Back then, 
The province was divided into two unequal parts, white-dominated Natal and the Zululand Bantustan. His father was a descendant of the Mkizes of Nkandla, where, in the 1830s, his great-grandfather was reportedly one of the most revered members of the clan. But during colonialism and then apartheid, families were given a parcel of grazing land for their cattle. They paid for it with their labor, working for the farmer who owned the land for several months a year in exchange for rent. When the sons of families who had made this arrangement turned 14, they were required to spend six months a year working as farmhands. One day, one of Nkize's older brothers fell out with the farmer, and he broke the agreement, forcing the family to pay for their accommodation. To do so, Nkize's father took a job working in the Peter Maritzburg Corporation Parks Department. But his older brothers, who also found jobs, refused to allow their talented younger sibling to share their fate and become a farm worker. His future, they decided, lay on the other end of the best possible education they could afford for him. Nonetheless, despite these difficulties, Mkize's memories of that time seemed tinged with nostalgia. That's why I used to tease him that I, I, I don't like rural life. I don't, I don't like farm life. I, I couldn't survive. And um, he would tell me about his love for, for rural, that you wake up in the morning, you look at the hills, you look at the cows there. In his heart, he, he's a very rural person. We've left the red and green of Willowfontein and made our way back to Durban, to a popular outdoor spot in the neighbourhood of Berea. We sit by a fountain and drink bottomless coffee with Cyril Madlala, a prominent journalist who went to work for Umkize as his head of communications, back when the good doctor became premier of KwaZulu-Natal in 2009. He likes the, 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 the tranquility, the natural order of things, as it were, elsewhere he always returned to, to Willowfontein. In his teens, Mkiza was sent to the elite Dlangezwa boarding school, where it became obvious that he was a brilliant student. But in 1976, when he was 20 years old, in his first year of medical school at the University of Natal, his life was impacted by a major shift in the history of the struggle against apartheid. Since June the 16th, when South African troops and police opened fire on a peaceful school children's demonstration, the white government has presided over the largest massacre of its black population since South Africa came into existence. Hundreds of blacks have died, thousands have been wounded, but the white prime minister says there is no crisis. Fire on the streets, shutdowns at factories, school closures, boycotts, international protests and sanctions. The resistance against apartheid became a global mass movement. As the 70s gave way to the 80s, an alliance of 40 different public organizations in South Africa formed the United Democratic Front, which bolstered the ANC's efforts, as did the labor unions. The apartheid regime called this a total onslaught, a coordinated attack by hostile revolutionary forces, domestically and internationally, that sought the destruction of South Africa. I've been lenient and patient. Don't push us too far. To ward off these threats, the famously charming P.W. Boerter, then Minister of Defence, gave orders to the heads of the security forces, the Department of National Intelligence and other security mechanisms to implement his total strategy. In other words, to use any means available to shut the onslaught down. By the late 70s, the apartheid state was blowing 21% of its annual budget on state security alone. We believe in a system of private initiative and we will protect it as far as it is humanly possible. By the early 80s, Nkize, along with his wife Meima Shekho, who he met at school, 
were medical doctors. Their world was becoming increasingly messy, and the bullets were flying from all sides. KZN-based journalist Chris Mackaye has written extensively on the mafia-like patronage networks here, and has a considerable insight into the dons of the province. He has followed the rise and the rise of Dr. Mkize, and has personally dodged some of those bullets himself. We asked him for some context. When we were growing up, Chief Buteleze was in charge of these Inkata warlords, which were very violent. They used to attack with such ferocity, and yet he was speaking on peace on one hand, and on the other hand, his warlords and Amabuto were involved in the killing of people. He was a contradictory figure. The Inkata National Cultural Liberation Movement, later the Inkata Freedom Party, was led by Prince Mogosutu Gacha Butelezi. As chief, he governed the KwaZulu-Bantustan, which encompassed about a third of the territory in the province of Natal. This history is winding, complicated and nasty, but it can be whittled down to the following, which was captured in a Truth and Reconciliation report presented in October 1998. Quote, In late 1985, Budelezi was alerted to alleged plans to have him assassinated by Umkonto Wesizwe, the ANC's armed wing, commonly known as MK. He turned to the apartheid security apparatus for support. Butelezi's requests included, among other things, the training and deployment of a VIP guard unit, a KwaZulu army, and a paramilitary force. The apartheid armed forces viewed the question of covert assistance to Nkata as mutually beneficial. It saw Inkata playing a central role in its strategic response to the total onslaught by the liberation and resistance movements, end quote. This secret backing would eventually become known as the Third Force. Political violence in KwaZulu-Natal claimed, according to sources, more than 20,000 lives since 1984. This was fueled by a third force of state security operatives, which supported IFP paramilitaries against what the ANC termed was its self-defense units. The bloodshed was frankly insane. When the violence started, we were still in the primary school and going to the high school, and that's when it escalated. I think every generation has its fears. But our fears was like I would get killed in political violence. Under all this pressure, Swelim Kize found his own role as a revolutionary. He was heavily influenced by a local activist, the extraordinarily named David Cecil Oxford Matiwane, who was sort of a cross between a performance artist, a bush lawyer, and an anti-apartheid agitator. He was connected to other powerful underground figures in the Midlands, like Harry Gwala, who would eventually become infamous as a true provincial ANC warlord. By the mid-80s, Nkize was recruited into MK. In late 1985, during Buerta's infamous state of emergency, 11 people were arrested, all of whom were involved in the botched Operation Butterfly, codename for an MK plan to bomb key infrastructure in KZN. Nkize, who was involved in the operation, was almost arrested with them, but he managed to escape to Swaziland in January 1986. In exile, Nkize continued with his medical practice, first in Swaziland and later in Zimbabwe. He treated MK combatants living in Zambia, Tanzania, Zimbabwe and other neighboring states. By 1987, he was a commander of MK in charge of underground cells that operated in KZN. Along with his wife May, he became an essential member of the ANC in exile, 
This was the group that would define the role of the organization going forward. Connected by a network across Africa and Europe, they were the party's vanguard, its leading lights, but also its aristocracy. Every party must have its elite. The exiles would claim that title and go on to become the most powerful faction within the ANC. Zueli would have been recognized as an MK soldier. And I think in exile as well, he linked up with people involved in those activities. So that's, that's one dimension of him. A doctor in a in white coat and a terrorist in terms of, of how they would have been described those years. It's always an interesting juxtaposition of his character. After Mkize had spent tough, bloody years patching up his comrades and helping to bury a number of them, history made two of its grand gestures. First, in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. Then the Soviet Union teetered and finally hit the skids in 1991. This was the night of the big breakout. Checkpoints across Berlin had finally buckled before the extraordinary political pressures racking this frontline communist state. At home, Boerter's successor as president, F.W. de Klerk, made the decision to dismantle apartheid based on a calculus of hard pragmatism. Due to the growing pressure from the struggle movement and the moral repugnance produced by apartheid's extraordinary death toll, the state was literally running on empty. I am now in a position to announce that Mr. Nelson Mandela will be released at the Victor Verstaat prison on Sunday, the 11th of February at about 3 p.m. Don't be confused, this was not a gesture of benevolence. There were a number of roads available to de Klerk, but only one that made sense. Nelson Mandela, the leader of the African National Congress, he walked out of a prison on a gloriously sunny South African afternoon. And there is general agreement that his freedom begins a new era in South Africa. In 1991, Zweli Mkize returned home from exile to a country and a province still at war. The four-year transition period from February 1990 to April 1994 was characterized by political violence between the ANC and IFP, seen as a low-intensity war. Mkize was brought in as a broker for the ANC, and along with his close comrade Jacob Zuma, he assisted in quelling the worst of the violence that threatened to devolve into an extended bloodbath. Zuma would later acknowledge Mkize's work as a peacemaker. As part of the KZN ANC Midlands leadership, Dr. Mkize played a key role in peace initiatives to bring about an end to the strife between the ANC and members of the IFP in the province. <clears throat> when he came back, it was easy for him to then reactivate, do a lot of groundwork in terms of his support across the board. Zueli was one of the few, together with Zuma, who would get into their traditional Zulu thing for King Shaga Day celebrations and be there with their spears and shields and be comfortable, you know, in their skin. Former Health Minister William Keyes is among the guests honouring a fallen member of Amabuto. He's now addressing that important event. Let's listen in. He did an excellent job in terms of uniting KZN. And really is a smooth operator. He managed to persuade Inkata to relax as well. It was easy for him to galvanise everybody around the unity banner. Yes, but unity between whom? On the streets? What happens in the state that does not have law and order? That the institution that safeguards your democratic values and principles suddenly disappear? Surely we have a responsibility 
to protect our families, protect our neighborhood. I would not blame, I mean, even in this neighborhood uh, that I am, I was not surprised that there was a toll gate just in this little street. I had to ask a few questions because that's what we have become. They have no reason to trust me. Unfortunately, we are heading to that, building gated communities where we don't speak to our neighbors, where we don't care who our neighbors are. When they scream, we don't come to their rescue. It leads to the survival of the fittest. But the answer lies with the majority of this country. The answer lies with men and women of South Africa. The isolation and insularity Zikorda speaks about seem to be a global phenomenon. The forming of lagers, the dissolution of community. But there are winners in this arrangement. Next, we'll show how Zueli Mkize became one of them. The Highwayman is written, produced and directed by Richard Poplack and Diana Neal, with editing and sound design by Bernard Kutzer. Diana Neal and Tevia Turok-Shapiro. The original soundtrack is written by Bernard Kutzer. Our project manager is Catherine Kutzer. Fact-checking and editorial oversight by Sasha Whale-Smith with transcriptions provided by Gloria Cooper. Additional voiceover by Ayanda Charlie. Our editor-in-chief is Branko Brickich and our executive producer is Silly Gerlambus. Production of The Highwaymen was made possible with support from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. The content may not necessarily reflect the foundation's views or opinions. For additional archive and music credits, please visit Daily Maverick. New episodes of The Highwaymen drop weekly on IONO, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen to them on the Daily Maverick website. If you found this installment interesting, illuminating, or perhaps even a little life-changing, please consider leaving a review or sharing on social media.